This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Tanse, hello, and welcome back to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olette Stonechild, and I'm very thankful and excited to have this conversation with Nahani Fontaine. This week, we talk a little bit about what happened on Instagram in regards to the censorship uh, and the deleting of several thousand posts regarding missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in the Two-Spirit Crisis. However, this has been the backbone within Nahani's work. She has been the MLA for St. John since 2016, and she is a nationally recognized expert on Indigenous women here in Canada, and she has helped to bring international attention to the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit people. She is proud to be status Ojibwe from the Sagging Anishinaabe First Nation, and she's also a mother and a matriarch, and she embodies a lot of wisdom, and I was very inspired after this conversation, and so I hope she also brings that inspiration to you. Hi, hi. This week's episode of Matriarch Movement is brought to you by our partners at Louvre Design. Louvre is a socially responsible fashion retailer and manufacturer specializing in sustainable women's clothing with all pieces made and designed right here in Canada. You know, I support women like it's my day job and Louvre is 100% female owned and female led, which is an A plus in my books. Finding sustainable clothing that doesn't break the bank is literally not easy, but Louvre has set out to change that. Even better, you can be sure that everyone Louvre works with are getting fair wages and we know how important it is to bridge the gender wage gap. All the clothing is as comfortable as your yoga gear but chic enough to wear on your next Zoom call with modern staples and playful prints that you'll literally want to wear every single day. Check out Louvre for yourself at louvedesign.com. That's L-O-U-V-E design.com. And get free shipping on your next order with the code Shayla Shipping. All one word at checkout. And the United States. And uh, it was just May 5th, um, two days ago. And so we've both been doing plenty of interviews um, regarding that and Instagram's censorship. But we'll get that into it a little bit later if you just want to briefly introduce yourself Nahani if mm-hmm. I missed anything thank you so much yeah no I think you you pretty much did it all I'm I'm not like I said I'm a really proud member of the Saigon and Nishabe First Nation which I I just want to give them a shout out like our our community like all communities across the country have been just like leaders in protecting our communities from COVID-19 but also you know, again, leaders in sharing what we have. My community of Saigon uh, First Nation has been so generous at sharing the vaccine with non-Indigenous members uh, in the surrounding communities or teachers. And so I just want to give them a shout out. They're doing such good work. I also just want to give a shout out to you. Uh, You're doing such phenomenal work. And you know, I'm so proud to see, and and I'm sure that you know this as well, there's such a Uh, a movement right now among Indigenous women across the country, really from coast to coast to coast. And it's so beautiful to see uh, Indigenous women reclaiming that space. And so I just want to acknowledge the work that you're doing. I see you. I love the work that you're doing. It's, It's beautiful. 
Thank you. Hi, hi. Yeah, I think it's essential right now. As you can see online, our voices are continually being silenced. And so sometimes we need to take that power back and create our own spaces when we don't see ourselves represented Mm -hmm. in them. Um, So to start off, my first question is, you know, when you think of Indigenous women, what, what does the word matriarch mean to you? If it means how would you describe a matriarch? Mm -hmm. Let me go back just a little bit, just so folks understand who I am in in that context. Uh, Like many of us, you know, I uh, suffered with addictions in uh, when I was younger. And uh, it's actually coming up to, you know, maybe almost 29, 30 years that I quit doing drugs, and drinking and smoking all of that stuff. But the moment that gave me the strength to do that was when I was 20. And I met, I had just moved, I left Winnipeg when I was 10, I moved to Montreal. And so I left, I was living in Montreal from 10 until 20. And one night in Montreal, I had done so much drugs um, that it was like early, early in the morning. And I realized that I was having an overdose. And, and in that moment that I come to this realization that I had, I was having this overdose, you know, it became very clear to me that I, I was, I was exactly like my mom who also had addictions. And it was in that moment that I decided to come back home to Winnipeg. So when I came back home to Winnipeg, probably about a week after I got back, I moved in with my uncle. My uncle is uh, Eagle and Hawk in Indian city. Him and his wife took me in. And they introduced me to an elder. Her name was Shannon. So it was about a week I had been back. Keep in mind that when I came back from Montreal, I brought my drugs with me. I brought alcohol. Like, I just thought I was going to leave Montreal for a little bit, you know, continue what I was doing, but in Mm. Winnipeg. And she sat down with me and we got to, you know, talking a little bit. And she said to me, she said, Nahani, she said, do you realize the lineage that you come from? She says, Mm. do you realize how sacred it is to be an Indigenous woman? She said, do you realize the strength of the ancestry that you belong to? I had never heard that in my life. Never. And in that moment, it changed the trajectory of my life to where I'm sitting here speaking with you. And so when, when we talk about matriarchs, matriarchy, matriarchal lineage, matriarchal ancestry. For me, that's what it means. It means that as indigenous women on our territories, we are here because of the matriarchs that came before us. And we're here surviving and thriving and commanding our space in positions of empowerment and healing and love because of matriarchs, because of the Mm -hmm. spirit of matriarchy. You know, I'm not a religious person. I'm not a Christian. I, you know, I practice our ceremonies. For me, when I'm having moments where I'm overwhelmed or I'm upset or whatever it is, I, for years since that very moment until this very moment, draw strength upon our ancestries, our Mm. women in particular, because most Canadians don't realize what our women survived so that you and I can be here today. And to me, that's that's what matriarchy is about. 
Yeah, literally. Uh, thank you for sharing that story. Uh, for me, I feel like I, I, my story is different, obviously, in the sense, but I too had a very dramatic shift in my consciousness when my father passed away and it was because he committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And that was because of what he endured at the hands of the Canadian state. And so there was a big shift in my awareness and that also changed how I approached life. Mm -hmm. And for you having that shift at 20 and realizing, you know, was it, um, that moment, how did you realize you wanted to start uh, being a voice and you know going into politics was that something that you envisioned when you're smaller or was that something that happened after you had that wake-up call at 20. So I, I think I've always been like this I mean I, I can remember being in in high school or junior high whatever it's called and um, I remember being outside school and I was talking to one of my friends and I saw like a big group of kids gathering and and in Montreal that couldn't that wasn't a, a good thing you knew that there was a fight happening and so I I said I'll be right back and I marched over and it was this one boy who was trying to beat up this other boy well I got so and this other boy that he was trying to beat up um was like developmentally delayed and that it pissed me off and so I marched through there pushing everyone and push that guy. And I said, don't you dare touch him. And like, I've always been like that, but it grew to, to the work that I've been doing for the last, you know, 22 years, 23 years, um, from the death of my mom. And so, you know, I left my mom when I was 10, like I said, <clears throat> and, um, you know, I didn't see her again until I was 20 and she lived in Vancouver. She spent, the last 14 years of her life uh, on Vancouver's downtown east side. She was sexually exploited. She was a heroin addict. She was an alcoholic. And ultimately, when I was uh, six months pregnant, she died of an overdose in a SkyTrain uh, bathroom. And so we flew her body back home to Saginaw and Anishinaabe Nation. And uh, I remember, again, I'm pregnant. You feel, I and I don't know about other people, but I felt so powerful and sacred when I was pregnant like man I just like walk through people I just thought I was the cat's meow and so here you are you're like so sacred and and I was looking down at my mom's body and I realized it was in that moment that my mom was representative of so many indigenous women that don't get the opportunity to live fully because of colonization, because of systemic racism and all of those things. And it was in that moment that I dedicated my whole life to Indigenous women. Because, you know, to, to think, you know, we always talk about thinking and acting seven generations uh, ahead. And so it was in that moment that I wanted to do whatever I can, whatever small part I can to protect our women and our girls coming forward. And so, you know, those were very poignant moments. And, and again, it was started this journey. And so this journey, like you're saying, you've been on this journey, well, ever since those moments within your life. And do you ever feel at points that you get super overwhelmed? Because for me, sometimes I feel like Canada is not really moving that fast in supporting Indigenous people or women or politics. And so what keeps you motivated to keep going when it seems like everything is working against us? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, you know, I get those moments too. I think the moments that really, really impact and almost can destroy your spirit 
you know, like, like I said, I've been working on MMIWG2S for 21, 22 years. And I was just sharing this with a friend of mine the other day. I was going through some of the, the cases that I've, or some of the women and girls that I've advocated for or helped work on the families, you know, you know, five-year-old girl getting raped, you know, some of our women getting chopped up and thrown in the river. So of course I have moments where, you know, I remember there was a, a young woman who was murdered and, um, literally, you know, she, she was murdered in between these two, uh, buildings, uh, downtown. And, uh, I went to the site and there was needles everywhere. And you could tell that, you know, uh, our, you know, folks that are homeless stay there. And, and I remember just crying in my office, just so fed up, like so fed up of these stories day in and day out. But for me personally, and this is just me, you know, I, I lean in more to wanting to make change and to fight for change and being unapologetic for fighting for that change. Right. You know, I, Nahani Fontaine's not necessarily for everyone, right. Because I'm super blunt. I'm super, you know, in your face. I, I and that's fine. You know, I, I say to folks, I say, you know, when indigenous women, girls and two spirit can walk down the street safely and live their lives safely to a to a ripe old age then then I'll I'll be a little bit but until then that motivates me more to continue to do this work mhm no i think that's so important and i mean to always draw upon your own story but also to draw upon the experiences and the research and the bodies and the lives and the stories that you've witnessed and you've also heard um i can imagine that keeps you going day in and day out and we just passed uh national missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirit awareness day and instagram you know censored or took down a lot of our posts regarding that were you also a victim to what Instagram did? And do you think that it was, uh, it was, what's the word? Intentional. It was like intentional. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, you know, so first off, I didn't know, uh, I happened to go early in the morning. And, and so on May 5th, on, on National Awareness Day for MMIWG, I had posted my own stuff, which were my personal stuff from in the community, red dresses, uh, you know, a little vigil, Um, And but I had posted between like 20 and 25, uh, you know, other posts sharing them, right? Like, like we all did. And I'm sure that you saw this as well. For all the years that I've been doing this work, two days ago was the most vision that I saw in respect of MMIWG2S. And, and, And slowly but surely, it's been gradually growing. I mean, I remember 20 years ago when there was nothing. I remember 20 years ago when there was 10 of us at vigils every year, right? And so, you know, a couple of days ago, there was so much agency. There were so many acts of compassion and kindness and love. And so I had posted all these things. And then the next morning I was on somebody's story and and I see that they said their stuff got taken down. And I thought, oh, that's weird. And I thought, I'm going to check. And I'm like, oh my gosh, all my stuff is gone. And then when you go through it, So, you know, Instagram had come out and said that it wasn't, it was a glitch. And what I, what I shared in the media that I had done was that, okay, that, that may be, that may be true, but it is quite, 
uh, weird or strange or suspicious that it's Emma, my WG2S. Like, and not only just in, in little Winnipeg, it was across Turtle Island that people's accounts or their stories went missing. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily trust the statement that Instagram gave because I, I find it's a little strange, to be honest. Oh, yeah. No, like my post, even when I woke up this morning, it had gained, I think, 6,600 reshares and it reached 50,000 people. And then I woke up this morning and it was like, this this post goes against our community guidelines. It's hate speech and it has hate symbols. And I'm like, what? Since when is me advocating for Indigenous lives a victim of a part of hate speech? And so I like went against it and then they had it up again within the next hour. But I think that they were even, uh, because so many people were sharing that, they took it down for a brief moment. So now it's no longer on those people's stories. Um, And so, yeah, it just makes me wonder, like, who is in charge of, you know, what is allowed to be posted on mainstream media or social media and who dictates uh, what uh, other people get to see and to share. Mm -hmm. Uh, When it comes to MMIWG, do you have any, you know, how can non-Indigenous people advocate and support us when it comes to uh, the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls crisis? Yeah. And so here's something that I had tweeted on on May 5th. So, and again, again, you know, my my law knowledge and experience goes back, you know, 20, 21 years when, when really nobody was talking about it. I remember being uh, on a delegation to Europe and I remember being at the French Senate meeting with senators and nobody could believe it, right? Because Canada is presented as this great country to, to live in. And, and so slowly but surely that's all changed. And so you do have non-Indigenous people that are more engaged, uh, certainly know about the issue, more engaged and do want to help, right? And what I posted on, on May 5th was, you know, yes, May 5th is a, a day of awareness, right? It's, it's also a day to reach out to and show compassion and love to MMIWG families more particularly, right? So yes, you know, you can wear red and you can post things and you can, you know, uh, you know, do a variety of different things. But the other thing that May 5th is, is May 5th is also a day of action, right? And what I said is that it's not enough for non-Indigenous people or anybody really, but certainly non-Indigenous people to just share a post or, you know, like a post or whatever. Non-Indigenous people have such a a role to play in lobbying government to do their job, right? So non-Indigenous people can write their MPs, their MLAs, every level of government they can be writing to say, hey, It's two years after the national calls uh, to to justice. The only jurisdiction across Canada right now that has a strategy two years after the national inquiry is the government of Yukon. No other jurisdiction has. So non-Indigenous people can, can call upon and lobby their governments to say, what's going on? Are you going to uh, implement the calls to justice? Because ultimately, the calls to justice are the way out of this mess, are the way out of this epidemic. And so, you know, folks like yourself and myself are on the, you know, the front lines and the trenches, and I work with MMIWG2S families. It's not 
families' responsibilities, and in many respects, it's not Indigenous women's responsibilities. We didn't put ourselves here. So non-Indigenous people who want to be allies need to step up and they need to ask their governments and demand of their governments to get us out of this epidemic. Thank you. Hi, hi to our friends at Louvre Design for supporting this episode. As a yoga teacher and a spiritual revolution activist, my whole being is rooted in wellness, but not just of the body and spirit. Protecting Indigenous culture means protecting the land we belong to. The fashion industry is one of the most important sources of waste on our planet, but Louvre has set out to prove that sustainable fashion can be the norm. Protecting the planet, the people, and the animals are values most important to Louvre, and I stand firmly behind them. 25% of the pieces are actually made with upcycled fabrics, and the remainder of the fabrics are made with renewable materials like organic cotton, bamboo, modal, and tensile. This is the comfy modern brand you can be proud to wear. Don't forget to visit louvedesign.com, that's L-O-U-V-E design.com, and get free shipping on your next order with the code Shayla Shipping, all one word, at checkout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree, and that's what I've always uh, been curious about, is like, are our actions actually being implemented when it comes to, you know, in Parliament or the House of Commons or in what does it look like on that side? If people were to start writing in, how does that um, play out in Parliament? Yeah, I mean, here, here's what I what I know to be true is that you only get governments to start uh, responding and acting and tangibly acting when when they see that the voters, the electorate, are upset or concerned about something, right? If nobody emails them or if nobody protests at the ledge or nobody, wh- what is it in for them to do these? You know, most, uh, I would suggest, you know, governments need to be pushed to do these things. You know, and then the, the flip side of that is you know, and it's not for everybody among our people, certainly. But the flip side is that, you know, that's why it's so important to have our people elected in these roles, right? One of the first things that I did as an elected Indigenous woman into what is, you know, white colonial space, one of my, the first law that I got passed was every October 4th is actually provincially uh, uh, recognized in honor of indigenous women and girls in two-spirit. We're the only province across the country that it's embedded in law. Nobody would have done that, right? Like, so there's there's a, a variety of different ways to get at it, and but it is important for our people to also be elected so that you can affect that change internally. But it's not easy either. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say, like, what would your advice be for an Indigenous person, maybe the younger generation that wants to get into politics that is Indigenous because it is a colonial uh, system? And so what would your advice be for the younger generation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the the first piece is to kind of figure out which party and, and no party is perfect that will completely be everything that you are. Right. That's it's impossible. It's it's utterly impossible that any any one party will be everything that that I am as an indigenous woman or whatever, all of these things. So I think that, you know, figure out, you know, what is closest or best for you. 
you know, start volunteering in those uh, those political organizations. There's different constituencies that you can start to get involved. Uh, there, a lot of parties have uh, youth components to them, um, and get involved there. And ultimately, you know, my advice for our people, but in particular our women who want to run, is to, to, to don't pay attention, never mind all of the people that will say, well, you can't do it this way, you shouldn't do it this way, you have to get permission to do it this way, because those are meant to keep us out. Those are very strategic and methodical ways of trying to keep us out. If, if you want to run, then you go and run. You find somebody that will help you walk you through the process and that will say, you know what? I lift you up. I stand with you. It's your right to run. No matter what people say, go out, get the memberships, win the nomination. Like too often, far too often, there are obstacles after obstacles after obstacles that are put in the way of Indigenous women. And, and we have to be uh, courageous enough and draw upon our matriarchs to say, no, I'm good. I'm going to do this. This is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important is, yeah, remaining rooted in your own Indigenous identity. And for someone like you, I, for me, sometimes I feel like overwhelmed by the amount of work that we face, or I just feel, you know, burnt out. And so how do you pick up your pick up yourself back up again when you may be feeling burnt out? How do you continuously show up and be the voice um, for these issues? Okay, well, two things. One is quite silly, but but I'll say the first one. And I said this when we were on the social, because everybody was like, oh, that was such a great show, da, da, da. Of course it was. Like, <laughs> we're so yeah. good. Like, as I know. Women, we're so good. Like, everybody's just kind of finding that out. We know how good we are. Like, I, I know, you know what I mean? Like, so when I'm having those days, I just like, I'm so good. Like I'm mm -hmm. strong. I'm a warrior. I'm a survivor. I'm all these things. I'm so good. And it, it kind of regenerates me. The second thing, <laughs> and, and you know, whatever is I really do love to bake. I know, you know, I, I, I friggin' love baking. You, I spend a couple of hours baking and then I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, no, I see your posts all the time. I'm like, that looks good. I'm like, I'm gluten and dairy free. But like, if I could have a cheat day or just enjoy this, that would be one of your baking yeah. uh, cakes would be that. Yeah, part. I'd listen to my uh, music. I dance in my kitchen yeah. and I bake and then I'm fine. <laughs> Well, and that's so important too, is like we, as indigenous people, I feel like we're always either educating people on history or educating people on politics, educating on indigenous lives, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And it's like, okay, there's all of this, but how can we also bring up stories of joy and, you know, celebrate our existence as indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of talk um, online. I know in a lot of spaces about, you know, like decolonizing and like decolonization. And so for you as someone who works within the colonial system is there a way to even decolonize uh, the type of work that you're doing or what does the definition of decolonization mean to you yeah I mean that's uh yeah those are those are thesis uh discussions for <laughs> yeah, sure right totally. but you know to me it, in for just surviving is is an act of decolonization Right. Like we're we were we're not supposed to be here. We're not meant to mm -hmm. be here. Right. 
there, uh, you know, there was um, a famous uh, photographer who went around Turtle Island taking photos of Indigenous peoples. And, and, and the narrative at that time was because they were all vanishing. And years ago, we had a radio show out here. It was for Indigenous women. I was one of the co-hosts. And the, the title of that was Not Vanishing because we're not vanishing. We're here. And that's an act of um, resilience and decolonizing uh, space. You know, when you look at the prairies, the prairies have, uh, you know, some of the most uh, largest numbers of Indigenous peoples in the urban areas, right? Like, th these are traditionally our lands. We're here. That's an act of decolonization. Uh, so, and for women, for Indigenous women, you know, not apologizing for who we are. You know, I, I refuse to apologize for who I am. I refuse to apologize that you know, as a politician, even though I'm, I'm a part of that system, I don't do politics the way that politics has traditionally been done by white men over generations and generations and generations. People have to realize that politics has been the domain of white men for years and years and years. I won't apologize that I don't do politi politics in that way, right? That's an act of decolonization of, of, of legislatures in that space. Does it make people feel comfortable? No, not at all. But that's not my problem. You know, that, that's not my problem. So I think that those moments and embracing and, and I always say this, like I'm probably going to put it on my, my tombstone or whatever it's called, like, you know, commanding your space. Like, you know, as Indigenous peoples, as Indigenous women, always commanding and taking up space is a, mm -hmm. an act of decolonization. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. I love how you word that. Um, I think that's a good reminder to have and I should post that in front of my mirror just to remind me every single day when I wake up. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that you this has been like your journey for the past like 20 to 21 years. Do you see the government policies and the structures changing at all for the good when it comes to Indigenous people? Yeah, I mean, you know, when if um, if we look at just at MMIWG2S, again, you know, when you go back to the early 2000s, 2000, the year 2000, actually, that was when at the time the the president of the Native Women's Association of Canada was Terry Brown. And Terry Brown was actually the first person to kind of coalesce what was going on across the country. And it was actually Terry Brown who kind of coined the term missing and murdered uh, Aboriginal women. That's what we called it back then. And, and so when you go back and you look at how little was known, uh, you know, what wasn't done, all of these things, and, and you fast forward, you know, we had the Opal Inquiry, we had the National Inquiry, we've had two national roundtables, we've had uh, Indigenous Women's Summits, I think there were like four or five Indigenous Women's Summits. You have women that are, Indigenous women that are just reclaiming their space, like in just bold, courageous ways. Um, you know, things have shifted very slowly very, very slowly. You know, you can look at um, the RCMP in BC. The RCMP in BC, I think in 2010-ish, or, or or maybe a little bit after, I, I can't remember, but they apologized. They apologized that they didn't take the issue uh, seriously. Now, 
Now I'm not I'm not saying that oh, okay that everything is hunky dory and, and let's forgive them but but it was a moment where they recognized they didn't they didn't do what they should be doing right and so you know I have to believe that we can change things I have mm -hmm. to believe it does it look well, like I we are not right now yeah, that's the only thing that I think keep us moving forward is to never give up on hope is to start reimagining a new future of what does that look like. And I think when we reimagine a new future, there's a word that is always used and it's reconciliation. And we have, you know, the 94 calls to action and the TRC. Uh, do you feel like reconciliation is possible or is that just like a watered down word? Yeah, I mean, I believe anything is possible. And I like I said, you know, I have to believe anything is possible, because then, then what's the point of us doing any of this work, right? I do think, though, that reconciliation is the word reconciliation is being thrown out there, very, very liberally, right? And, you know, governments will say, you know, there, you know, there's nothing more important to me than reconciliation, we believe in reconciliation, our strategy is on reconciliation. But then they turn around and do things that are harming Indigenous peoples or turn around and do things that are harming Indigenous women, girls and two-spirited that lead to the end of our life. So, you know, uh, what I would suggest is that the, the under, our understanding of reconciliation and uh, non-Indigenous peoples, non-Indigenous non governments understanding of reconciliation are very different. Mm -hmm. And, and unless, you know, folks are willing to come to the table in an honest, open, vulnerable, truthful, committed way, I fear that that word is just going to be continued to throw out there with little, you know, here's $50,000 for this project because of reconciliation. Here's, you know, this uh, $100,000 because of reconciliation, but the underlying structures and systems still exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I th when I think of reconciliation, I think of first, where is the action behind reconciliation? And also, where is the relationship building? And where is the acknowledgement of the truth that's happened here in Canada? I feel like a lot of people still are not acknowledging what has happened here and the genocide against Indigenous people and women still mm -hmm. to this day. And so it's like, how can we come to a place of compassion and understanding if we don't acknowledge the truth that's happened here? Exactly. Um, Right. And yeah. so for non-Indigenous people that do want to start creating more relationships with Indigenous people and start implementing, you know, reconciliation, what would your advice be? I know for like we have already mentioned donating money. We've mentioned uh, sharing resources. But there are are there any other tangible ways that you would invite non-Indigenous people to start building relationships with us? Yeah. You know, let's just use politics as an example. So you'll have parties that will say, you know, yes, we believe in reconciliation. And, you know, we want more Indigenous representation in folks that run for us or win constituencies or whatever it may be. Okay, so that's great. That's a good start. But what ends up happening in practice is that you will have folks that will get tapped on the shoulder because they're kind of connected to the party or whatever it may be, or they know somebody or, or whatever, they end up running, they win the nomination, then they win the seat. 
and I've said this a couple of times at Equal Voice uh, uh, things that I've spoken at, non-Indigenous people, and, and let's just, like I said, just for politics, non-Indigenous peoples have to step back, right? Like you literally have to say to yourself, yeah, I'd like to run, I'd like to be in politics, but I I'm actually not going to. I'm actually going to support an Indigenous woman to run. I'm going to step back. Mm. And a really good example is this last BC election. And um, there was a riding, and I can't remember the riding or the constituency, uh, but Nathan Cullen uh, won that seat and won the nomination. Mm. But there was an Indigenous woman that wanted to run there. But mm. he was, you know, handpicked and won the nomination and, you know, all of these things. But, you know, you know, if you really believe in reconciliation, you could have stepped aside. And, and, you know, here's a man that was in absolute privilege. He was already an MP for how many years? He could have said, you know what? No, we're, I'm going to support this woman to run. But he didn't. And that happens all across Canada. So it's okay for people to step aside and allow and support Indigenous peoples into spaces that we traditionally have not been. Yeah, I think that works for like any kind of sector, whether it's politics or, you know, working with brands or, you know, in TV. I feel like sometimes people that are privileged, it's like, OK, well, are you comfortable with uh, stepping aside and letting an Indigenous person into this position? Mm -hmm. I wonder how the future or how the present would change if there was way more Indigenous people taking up spaces within these places, these colonial mm -hmm. places. Mm -hmm. uh, how can people support your work? You're doing so much. I know on social media in the House of Commons. How can people support your work moving forward? Um, yeah, geez, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I guess sharing sharing stuff on social media, but I mean, uh, for me, it's you know, I I try to 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 highlight other other Indigenous folks, other Indigenous movements, other Indigenous organizations, like. I think the best way that you can support the work that that I'm trying to do is by supporting those folks and lifting up those folks. Like I'm in a super privileged position as a, as a politician, like so privileged, right? So so I'm good. But but if mm -hmm. folks want to support that, lift up the people that that don't have access to that space. You know, one of the things that we do as MLAs is you're given. Uh, when it's your day, it's called member statements. And you're given two minutes to get up in the house and talk about whatever, talk about people, whatever you want to do, two minutes. Since I've been elected since 2016, the like probably 90% of my member statements have been dedicated towards Indigenous women, you know, individual Indigenous women, Indigenous women organizations, elders, whatever it may be. Because it, we've never been a part of that system. We've never been in that space, right? So in the same way, if non-Indigenous folks want to lift up and highlight mm. and give space to those that are not in positions of privilege, to me, that is the mm -hmm. best way that you can support the work that we're all doing. That's the work that mm -hmm. you do, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. that's the work that so many of us do. 
Yeah, I think that's in a way like decolonizing is like conscious co-creation and collaborating and coming back into community and kinship, really, which is at the forefront of like a lot of our uh, values as Indigenous people. Uh, We all know that this pandemic and like 2020 has been so hard on our mental, physical, emotional and spiritual well-being. Not only are we seeing a lot of people um, die from COVID, but also we're seeing people pass away from suicide and overdoses. And I was looking at your Instagram. I mean, you've actually spoken about this, of how we need to implement more um, harm reduction policies and more stuff to support our people. Um, I guess for like, what would, moving into 2021, what do you hope for the future when it looks pretty bleak right now? Yeah. I mean, you know, if if there's one thing that COVID has done is it has completely laid bare the the inequities in society, right? And so in Winnipeg right now, this whole last year, in in fact, even before that, like slowly but surely you could see uh, the social security uh, net kind of disintegrate because we have a new government, we have a conservative government, they've been hell bent on austerity, blah, 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 all of that stuff. And so you see it getting worse and worse. But in the last year, the suffering of our people is completely overwhelming. Like our people are, and Winnipeg weathers are no, you know, winters are no joke, right? Minus 40, minus 50, minus 30 on a good day. Our people, throughout all of that that weather, because the shelters had to reduce the amount of people that they had, because there's not as many programs, they were sleeping in bus shacks. Like our people in our own territories, the original inhabitants, the original caretakers of these lands were sleeping in bus shacks. And... You know, so if there's anything that I that that I want to see or that needs to be done is that people recognize, you know, I think I, I sit there and I think, you know, what, what do people think when they see our people? You know, I, I feel like they, they, you know, there's probably a range of emotions, pity, disgust, whatever. All I see when I see our people struggling is, you know, the the original caretakers of these lands and so commit in very substantial comprehensive robust ways of of lifting up getting housing getting social housing ensuring that there are uh, addiction strategies and places for harm reduction like safe consumption sites so people don't die my mom died you know on the streets from a heroin overdose you know several years before insight Insight is a, an amazing program and an amazing best practice across the country. Like we need to be doing that. People may not agree with people doing drugs. That who cares? That's that's not your that's not your business. What your business as government is to ensure that they that they live. And so that's what I want to see for our people. Mhm. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I mean, um, honestly, a lot of addiction has been in my family um, and heroin and my father's same thing. He was um, he abused a lot of heroin and a lot of drugs and he was never given the help within um, 
society or within the system and he was a part of the canadian federal system he and that's where he passed away was in prison Mm -hmm. and so for me when i look at that when i look at the struggles of indigenous people of our people i realize that it's at the hands of the canadian government and what has happened to us here and so for me, I didn't understand when that happened, because being younger, you don't under really, really understand. I mean, the history until you get older. But there's this concept that I recently learned about, and it was two eyed seeing. And it was like, how can we um, I don't know if you've heard of this saying, but it's like the indigenous ways of knowing and being and then the Western and it's like holding them to and you're kind of walking with two moccasins on you have mm-hmm. your indigenous ways, but you're also living in Western society. And so So I think as Indigenous people, sometimes it's even just having that concept of how do we remain rooted to our uh, traditions in a modern day world. And also, if we are struggling with addiction, maybe that I don't know if there is a place where they hold um, Indigenous ways of healing, like the sweats and the rituals and the ceremonies and um, also recovery centers. I mean, reimagining a new future. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that is even possible for our people or if there's a way to start implementing those protocols calls within uh, the systems because I also feel like there's such a lack when it comes to getting help like first Mm -hmm. it's like yes yes you want to get help but then it's like there's nothing there's nothing really there there's no real program that I mean there's a few but I like you're saying I feel like there's a really big lack Um, and, and what else what other what else also happens is that you know, there'll be a program and everybody will be all gung ho and there'll be like, you know, government, uh, you know, press conferences and, you know, like, oh, you know, here we do, here's this program. But then the commitment wanes off it, it, right. So you'll get funding the first year, the second year, the third year, then less funding, then less funding. And then eventually that program just kind of deteriorates, you know? So if you look in Winnipeg, there, there are, there were programs that there were sweats in the city we have the Thunderbird House, which hasn't gotten any funding. It needs repairs, hasn't gotten any funding from the feds or the province, right? It just slowly deteriorates because, again, is the commitment to Indigenous peoples, is it there? When you look at the money that we spend on, you know, the military or whatever, whatever you want to, like, the amount of money that we spend on these cultural foundational pieces is nowhere even close, Hmm. Well, I mean, just for instance, the fact that there's still not clean drinking water in some First Nations communities, and this has been going on for how long? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's like still so much work to be done. Um, but I really am always um, amazed by all the work that you continue to do and you continue to show up. Mm-hmm. But thank you so much for sharing your energy and your time. And I'm looking forward to seeing you use your voice continuously and being in your power on social media and Instagram. And if you have any final words or final thoughts, um, hi, hi. Uh, just again, thank you. I, I, I love all the work that's going on across the country and you're a big part of that. And, you know, there, we're living in a really beautiful time right now. I know it doesn't seem, you know, it's kind of weird to say that in the midst of everything that we're going through. But when you look at Indigenous women across Turtle Island, it is something spectacular to witness from our ribbon skirts. Like the the evolution of our ribbon skirts, even in the last five years, is extraordinary. The evolution of our earrings, our podcasts, our social media, like it is extraordinary to witness. 
And so I lift up everyone, every single one of our women across Turtle Island. I honor you. I see you. I love the work that you're all doing. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I would love your feedback. Follow me on Instagram at Shayla0h at matriarch.movement. And don't forget to subscribe on the pod platform of your choice and review and rate where possible. I'll be back in a week. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for tuning in.